Hello and welcome. We are covering this week in Student Development Theory, Critical Perspectives on Race and Ethnicity. Uh, we have uh, three pieces that we'll be covering. Uh, the first one we will be covering is Critical Race Theory, Interrogating Race and Racism in College Student Development. Uh, we'll follow that up by uh, a piece called Counter Spaces in a Hostile Place, a Critical Race Theory Analysis of Campus Cultural Centers. And then we'll close out with a piece called Educational Inequities in Latina, Latino Undergraduate Students in the United States, a critical race analysis of their educational progress. Uh, before we jump into those, as always, uh, we're gonna turn it over to a colleague from the field to talk about how they do or do not use uh, student development theory in their work. Hi there, my name is Heather, or HCL. I use she, her, and hers pronouns. I currently work in education up in the Twin Cities, so that's in good old Minnesota. I'm originally from California, grew up in LA, and lived in the Bay Area for, gosh, forever. Um, I went to my master's program in the Northeast and have definitely been socialized into student affairs in a very, I would say, traditional way, maybe like some of you all. When I started in education, I very much believed in theory. Every time someone would say, what do you know about theory or how do you use theory? I had something like, I really believe in challenge and support or something like mattering and marginalization. In fact, I used them in my thesis. I very much believed in them. I probably pulled those out for every single interview that I had for my first professional positions. Um, but now that I've been in the profession for probably about 10 plus years, um, I think I have a little bit of a different perspective on how I use theory in my everyday. I do believe in making sure that people feel like they belong or I know that policies or experiences or interactions make people feel like they matter or it's my job sometimes to challenge someone across the table or support them in their process. I think that's a human human interaction or, or, or a way that we can describe how we are in relationship. Um, but I also think that theory is a way that those kind of interactions have been used for oppression. Theory can be a very oppressive process. Um, I was telling the fa your faculty member, Gavin, right? That those, those are things that for me as a queer woman of color have been really oppressive tools that have been used. Um, my favorite theory that I have been, um, that, have, that I've used in, in different things um, or publications that, I have, that I've had um, is called uh, The Methodology of the Oppressed by Jella Sandoval. And so basically it's a really rad critical theory from third, third wave feminism that talks about um, essentially there are times where like queer, queer folks, women of color have to either like recognize the spaces that they're in and sometimes we collude with it right because like that's what we need to do to survive right that's one methodology or sometimes we 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 recognize the situation we're in and we go around it or avoid it or we recognize the tools that are in front of us and we adapt them right and we change them or we use them um, we essentially are adapting in every single way that we can to use the modes around us and so um 
essentially like this methodology is recognizing that folks who live and have uh, marginalized or historically mar like uh, marginalized and minoritized experiences actually know how to how to navigate uh, white supremacy and colonization and use it against the systems. So try that on for some size and uh, see if that works for you as you navigate student affairs. Bye. Welcome back. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you this week. Uh, again, talking about the criti some critical perspectives on race and ethnicity. Um, let me get this um, slide set up and shared with you all. Um, so this week we'll be talking about these three pieces. Um, we'll be talking about uh, critical race theory, interrogating race and racism in college student development from this book. Uh, Rethinking College Student Development Theory Using Critical Frameworks, edited by Elisa Abe, Susan Jones, and D.L. Stewart. We uh, discuss encounter spaces in a hostile place of critical race theory analysis of campus cultural centers. Um, and that's from this book, uh, Culture Centers in Higher Education, uh, edited by Lori Patton, who is also the author of the Green Book that we read this week. And then finally, Educational Equities in the Latino-Latina Undergraduate Students in the United States, a critical race analysis of their educational programs. Um, so without further ado, uh, we'll start with the first piece from Rethinking College Student Development Theory, uh, uh, centering around the use of critical race theory um, in student affairs programs. Um, so critical race theory um, is a framework, as we've talked about, that is useful, is a useful critical compass for negotiating the treacherous terrains of American racial politics. Uh, this is a framework that uh, arose out of critical legal studies that we discussed in town, um, in class, in town. I don't really know where that came from. Um, and has been around uh, as a framework um, for, for quite some time. Um, it really made its headway into the field of education in the 1990s. Um, and I would say that it probably made its way into higher education student affairs work uh, probably in the 2000s, uh, as far as my knowledge goes. Um, I know that it was not a framework that we discussed in my uh, master's program. Um, and so um, here we are now, uh, many, many moons later, where I think uh, it is uh, a disservice to not uh, talk about it. Uh, in uh, a classroom space. This book is well, Critical Race Theory, uh, the key ratings that form the movement. Um, this is edited by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Neil Gatanda, Gary Peller, and Kendall Thomas. Um, is, a, is a great uh, text. And in fact, the critical compass for negotiating the treacherous trains of American racial pro, uh, politics uh, that I quoted earlier comes from the introduction uh, from this text. And so uh, it is a, it was the book that I used in my CRT class uh, back in the day. And I think it's a, a really has sort of, as it says, the key writings that form the movement. Uh, as we've discussed in class before, um, there are sort of five um, tenets uh, to critical race theory um, that uh, are traditionally thought of and considered when we're considering critical race theory. Um, uh, and, and there is uh, this uh, chapter uh, by uh, Jessica Harris and Ilion Poon uh, focuses largely on uh, four elements that racism and as a 
as an endemic, uh, the notion of whiteness as property, uh, the challenging of ahistorical narratives, and the differential racialization. And we'll talk about them uh, in the course of this conversation. Um, and so uh, what we, uh, this, this chapter asks us to consider what is gained in understanding of identity when critical race theory is applied. And so what does it look like when we start to take a critical race perspective and understanding what does it mean to consider and think about uh, race? Um, and so I would argue that when we use CRT to consider identity development, we're really um, considering not only race as an identity, but we're considering the notion of racial politics, uh, as well as the impact of power on the real, the reality of um, the reality of individuals and navigating of life as a racial being, uh, whether that is as a, a black or African American person, a Latino, Latina, Latinx individual, an Asian uh, individual, a person of Asian descent, a person of African descent, a uh, person of Middle Eastern descent, a person of European descent. Uh, there is a uh, racial power um, and uh, the reality of living in society as a person who has a racial identity, right? And so each one of these come with sort of different elements of power uh, within them. And so CRT uh, demands of us that we consider how power has an impact upon one's individual racial identity. Um, it also asks us uh, to question the very notion of meritocracy, uh, the notion that everyone is able to succeed on their own basis, uh, and that everyone is able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, which is probably um, a phrase that you've heard before. It questions the notion of objectivity. Um, and as I've shared in class before, that I, I would uh, argue that there's no such thing as objectivity, there's only a shared subjectivity, um, where uh, a multiple of people with power are saying, oh, this is an objective fact, when it's like, well, no, it's like, Facts can always be potentially subjective. It is what we as a society, as a culture, as a group have agreed on as um, an objective fact. Um, and we can talk more about that in class, of course. Uh, and then the notion of colorblindness. And so maybe this is different for you, um, but I remember hearing uh, as a child that uh, we should strive to be colorblind, that we should not see color, um, uh, or that everyone is all the same and that uh, color is external, all the same on the inside. Um, so CRT uh, uh, questions that and pushes back against that, right? By, by maintaining and being colorblind, we are ignoring the lived realities of individuals' uh, lives. Um, and that's... Uh, demonstrates a ignorance to the lived experiences of individuals, right? As a white person myself, um, I have been the benefit of unearned privileges from the very nature of moving from within the society as a white individual. And that also is what um, I mean by a move from the individual to society within using critical race theory. Whereas many student development theories that we have discussed talk about the individual um, and their individual growth, CRT really challenges us to consider um, the individual within society and how an individual uh, moves through uh, society as, um, as a racialized being. Um, sorry, I have to sneeze. I guess I don't, it's gonna, I'm gonna start talking, it's gonna come. Um, <laughs> Great, sorry, 
Appreciate that. Thanks for staying with me. Um, and so endemic racism and what uh, Harris and Poon uh, are talking about here is that um, that scholarship uh, and practitioners often obscure the influence of racism in student development theory. Um, they do not name the role of racism in the lives of students um, and instead are using language such as chili um, or harmful or isolating to describe racism without necessarily absolutely talking about it. And so I've talked about in classes that I believe that individuals, uh, until they are pushed sometimes, uh, particularly white people, are not comfortable in talking about and addressing racism. Um, and so uh, I think um, uh, that, is, that, that is a detriment to all individuals. Um, we have to be able to name what we are seeing, um, thinking about to some of the work uh, that we have read earlier in this semester and that we have to name oppression um, and, and potentially be that person that is willing to stand up um, and challenge uh, issues of racism and other forms of oppression. Um, and we have to name it. Uh, understanding that racism is in all aspects of student development theory, uh, not just race, and that uh, racism has impact upon all others. And we'll talk about that later. Uh, remember that when we talk about uh, uh, the, the Mary Matsuda towards the end of today. Um, the endemic racism normalizes and reinscribes racism and upholds the status quo um, and that we need to recognize all types of and forms of racism in order to, to combat it. Um, it is not, uh, uh, we need to understand that Racism is not only manifest in this, and this is from uh, page 19, not only manifest in students' development of the racial identities, and that it thus should not be just explored while teaching, researching, and supporting students' racial development, but it is a pervasive problem that steeps into all facets of the lives and must um, always consider it. Whiteness's property um, is a, um, a, a framework uh, that comes out of um, Sorry, I, I was blank on her name. Cheryl Harris, um, the notion of whiteness as property um, is the um, political construct of power that structurally allows white people to gain unearned material privileges. Um, this uh, systemically deforms and informs every aspect of the world. Um, and so this is a, uh, the notion that whiteness is a social and cultural capital, that the whiteness is default, right? Um, I like to think about the, the very notion of what is a hyphen, right? Um, largely every group that is not white um, have a hyphen, right? So you're either African-American or Asian-American um, or some, and this isn't wholly true. Um, and every, you know, you can always still be called an American, but often um, there isn't sort of, no one really goes around and identifies as like a European American or a white American, right? And so that uh, really shows that this whiteness has a, a default. Um, one of the examples I talk about um, is that white students are trusted by white faculty, that a presumption of innocent, uh, a, a presumption of innocence amongst white individuals. This is very much related to the notion of conferred dominance that we talked about two or three weeks ago in class. Um, and so uh, there is uh, 
they talk specifically uh, in this chapter uh, about the rights to use, enjoy, and exclude, the rights of disposition, the reputation and status of properties. Um, if you're interested in this notion of uh, whiteness as property, I, I highly encourage you to read the full piece uh, by Cheryl Harris. It was a piece that I read um, a number of years ago it comes out of the Harvard Law Review uh, from the uh, June of 1993 um, and uh, really talks about um, the persistence of whiteness as a value social identity in the way uh, that it um, has been held up and um, is, is inscribed into the very laws of our land. And I think um, we talked about the challenge to critical race theory uh, through uh, 45's executive order uh, several weeks ago. And I think that is the very notion of how whiteness is inscribed within law. When it gets challenged, it is able to use laws because the laws are, um, are, are scripted and structured in such a way to maintain the status quo um, and the status quo in this country being whiteness. Um, Finally, uh, this uh, chapter, one of the other uh, elements that it really talks about is the differential racialization and challenging ahistorical narratives. Um, the ideas of race are consistently changing, right? And so what considers, what is constituted as race and racial identities are not static. They are always in flux, uh, both as a sociocultural idea, but also as an individual's racial understanding and identity and development. Um, individuals in this class might be in a process of kind of understanding and coming to terms with their own ideas of race and what it means to be a racial being uh, in a U.S. context in this year, right? Um, and so um, this quote or uh, drawn from Del uh, Delgado and Stefanik, students' identities are temporal and ever-changing and must be placed in the socio-historical contemporary context that, quote, re-examines America's historical record. And so, uh, you know, America was founded on racism in many ways. And to deny that history means that we deny our very presence. Um, and so one of the things to consider as well is the impact of racism on higher education, right? And so I came from a, a campus before this where we still had surviving um, quarters of um, enslaved people um, who were owned by the university that I worked for, right? Um, and so that is not, as far as I know, not necessarily the case here at Illinois State. Um, but that is a very real history of our institution that our institution did not want to acknowledge. And so in 2015, um, we, like many campuses, the University of South Carolina had a list of demands from student activists. And one of those demands was to recognize and um, uh, illustrate and not hide that history, particularly uh, on campus tours. Um, these uh, quarters were located, one of them is in the backyard of our university president, but there were others as well, right on um, our, uh, what is called the horseshoe, uh, akin to the quad at ISU um, in many ways. And so that is where we would take students on tours and they would just see these buildings and not understand the historical implications of what these buildings were. Um, and so um, that was something uh, to acknowledge uh, and know. Um, yeah.
And so uh, critical race theory is a, uh, a useful uh, piece to understand uh, that they close out uh, by talking a little bit about that um, scholars and practitioners need to be knowledgeable about the historical context uh, of contemporary events um, and how the histories of racism and colonization uh, are endemic and part of our lives and lived experiences and be able to teach from that space. Um, you know, I, I, years ago when I was a practitioner, got invited to be a guest speaker in a um, student development theory course, and students were uncomfortable talking about race. Um, and a student one time asked me, because I, I kind of called them on that, I said, no one here is really, seemed to be really comfortable about talking about race. And someone asked, you know, when they would get comfortable. Um, and, I, and I shared with them, and I still believe this is true, is that it comes particularly for white people uh, through, um, um, self-reflection and pushing oneself. Uh, white people have, we have the privilege of not having to think about or talk about uh, or conceptualize race and its impact on our lives. Um, folks of color uh, generally don't always have that uh, luxury, that privilege. Um, and so it is important for folks to start thinking about um, how this has had an impact on their lives um, and to start the work. I think um, the, the, the second best day to start thinking about and being an advocate for racial justice is uh, today. The first best is yesterday. Um, and so uh, it is important that we start considering how to do this work and you have to start sometime. If you haven't already started, I, I hope that you will start today. Um, and if you need help navigating what that looks like, uh, of course I am here uh, to be a, a resource for you. Um, we're going to move on to the next piece, uh, Counter Spaces in a Hostile Place of Critical Race Theory Analysis of Campus Cultural Center. And this is coming uh, from this book, Cultural Centers in Higher Education. Um, and this piece was really important to me as someone who used to work in a cultural center, uh, working in the multicultural affairs. Uh, previously, uh, this piece resonated with me a lot because I could see some of uh, what the scholars Terry Yasso and Corina Benavides Lopez uh, were talking about. Uh, they open up uh, with a quote from Solorzano and Villapando uh, talking about culture centers can provide a physical, epistemological, social, and academic counter space for students of color to build a sense of community and nurture critical resistant navigational skill. Um, and so counter spaces um, and counter narratives by extension um, are a foundational, I, I would call them a foundational part of critical race theory. And they are basically uh, spaces or, or, or narratives, um, depending on which one you're talking about, that run counter um, to the dominant narrative or the dominant space. Um, and uh, these authors really argue that these spaces serve as a space for healing, um, for, uh, 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 for a social space for these individuals, uh, uh, because um, individuals uh, often have to deal with a lot on campus. Uh, when I, sorry, when I'm saying individuals, students of color uh, have to deal with a lot of stuff on campus uh, that uh, we as practitioners um, both see um, and unfortunately sometimes also um, manifest and, and can perpetuate. 
Um, and so my hope is that none of you perpetuate that um, and continue that uh, violence against uh, students of color. Um, and uh, this piece hopefully will allow us to understand uh, the importance of uh, counter spaces and cultural centers. Um, and so um, uh, this piece uh, talks about, again, um, as we used this quote several weeks ago um, about uh, Du Bois talking about that this century will largely be dealing with the quote, the problem of the color line. Um, this piece uh, really talks about um, microaggressions, which uh, many of you are familiar with, of course, um, but names um, Chester Pierce as the uh, individual um, who um, termed, named, coined that term. Um, this is, I would argue, common language now um, and is a theory. If we, we talk about the notion of theory as um, being shared language, um, and so that is uh, something to consider as well. Um, you know, I have a, and so I think we can name what microaggressions are. Uh, they're often um, small statements. And when I say small, I don't necessarily mean that they're less impactful, but statements that uh, come across come across by the perpetrator as not a big deal, um, but they occur on a regular basis uh, that they are not uh, um, small, right? Um, I would also say that, you know, the very notion of microaggression, I don't know if this is the case or not, but this idea that microaggression makes it seem smaller than it is. And the reality is, is that it's something that occurs so often that it's no longer micro and it happens a, a lot. Um, and that these send messages and cause harm and also cause labor for individuals to challenge, uh, to uh, teach, to set right. The reality is that for many marginalized student populations, whether that's students of color, queer, trans students, uh, or uh, women on campus, anyone who kind of embodies a um, uh, subject position that experiences oppression have to do labor on campuses that um, their uh, peers who don't embody those subject positions don't have to do, right? Um, uh, the authors also talk about um, how microaggressions transition and transform into racial battle fatigue. That comes out of the work of William Smith. Um, and so uh, this, the accumulation of racial microaggressions um, is in essence a, um, rejection of their presence on campus. Um, and so they really sends a message of who belongs, who doesn't belong, um, has very real uh, impacts upon students. Um, and so the next section of this uh, piece really talks about the social, physical, and epistemological cultural starvation of Chicano undergraduates uh, at an urban liberal arts public West Coast college. Um, and so this cultural starvation is really about um, the ways in which that uh, predominantly white institutions or PWIs reproduce a white middle class culture. And so um, here's a quote here um, from page 88 uh, on the screen. It says, you're not going to see your food there. You're not going to watch Spanish language television. You're not going to hear Spanish on the radio station. Nothing you're, he, you're used to is here, especially in the halls. So what we did is we created an organization for the halls that helped with all those things. And that's a quote from an individual from the University of Illinois. And I thought this was, of course, particularly uh, interesting um, due to the fact that, you know, that's right down the street from us. 
Um, and so um, it's about a half hour away. Uh, and so, um, as I said earlier, um, that um, this notion of cultural starvation uh, really is the perpetuation of a whiteness on campus. And this relates also to the work uh, or the, the notion of whiteness as property, right? This uh, cultural and social capital that whiteness is and has on campuses and its very real impact upon students of color on these campuses. Um, and so quoting here uh, from the book again on page 88, white students do not bear the extra load of confronting race and gender marginality in college. Um, like their counterparts, students of color are having to do this on top of everything else they're having to do. Um, and so uh, any sort of race neutral or colorblind policies flies into the face of the very real realities of students on campus. So, um, the uh, challenge, the diversity of convenience, right? And so this is a, um, uh, this notion of uh, what does diversity mean on campus? And so I, I would argue that diversity has become, a term that is used and rather misused in a way uh, to really try to have this sort of surface appearance of having a institution or a company or an organization, however and whatever you're speaking about, uh, that has this image of being inclusive without actually challenging and changing and interrupting systems of oppression within there. Uh, and, and so this um, ties in towards, particularly for higher education, the idea of a campus racial climate. And these authors uh, are defining a racial campus racial climate as the overall racial environment of the university that could potentially foster outstanding academic outcomes and graduation rates for all students, but too often contributes to poor academic performance and high dropout rates for students. Uh, they note that a positive campus racial climate would feature the inclusion of students, faculty, and administrators of color, a curriculum that reflects the historical and contemporary experiences of people of color, programs to support the recruitment, retention, and graduation of students of color, and a mission that reinforces the institution's commitment to diversity and pluralism. And so one of the uh, challenges is that there is this idea that we want to get students here, uh, but don't consider the unique challenges that students of color face on a campus. Now, if we're thinking about, as we were talking about sort of that uh, culture of starvation, uh, where whiteness is valued above all other elements of a campus, um, then we can kind of see how that might have a very real impact. And we'll see that on the third article a little bit as well that we're talking about that uh, this uh, diversity of convenience really speaks to um, just showing that we have it without actually doing the work uh, to help individuals um, and make sure that we're re uh, retaining, not just that we are recruiting, recruiting students. And so <clears throat> campus culture, sorry, um, these cultural centers serve as sort of a, um, central hub uh, for a lot of programs um, and 
often are the space where you see a lot of, uh, as this piece uh, talks about, students, faculty, and administrators of color, whether they're employed there or that's just where they feel that they um, are, can find that epistemological, social, um, and um, academic counter space where they can find those and build those critical resistant navigational skills. Um, so, um, yeah. Sorry for that. I really needed a drink of water and it took me longer than I wanted to, uh, to find um, my, uh, the pause button as it were. Um, and so uh, again, this, this notion of diversity of convenience, and this is on page 89, uh, the authors say that the, they, they distinguish between diversity of convenience, the form most often endorsed by universities and genuine diversity or pluralism, which seems increasingly difficult to realize in an era of colorblind or race neutral politics. Evidence in reactionary and superficial policies to increase the size of underrepresented groups, diversity of convenience can actually contribute to a hostile campus racial climate. Um, and so White uh, says, beyond portraying a racially diverse group of students in recruitment brochures, Historically, white universities do not necessarily commit to providing equal access and opportunities for student color, let alone promise an inviting positive campus racial climate. Um, and so we as um, university administrators, as student affairs educators really need to advocate and work for and push uh, universities to move beyond that diversity of convenience into a genuine radical inclusion element, which uh, no longer centers or privileges uh, whiteness, uh, but really strives to work towards making a space and remaking a space uh, that is um, reflective of um, and inclusive of all identities, um, not just whiteness. Um, and so uh, the piece then goes on to um, talk a little bit and critique uh, the work of Tinto, uh, who uh, talks about um, and Vincent Tinto's stages of passage model, um, which is this, the uh, an older student development theory uh, that talks about uh, the ways that uh, engage in three, uh, students engage in three passages early on in college, the separation, transition, and incorporation into the college. The separation is students disassociate from the pre-college community. The transition is during and after that transition, letting go of old norms um, and uh, attaining new norms. Finally, that this incorporation refers to students' integration process into college communities. Um, and so really questions, what might this look like for African-American students? And that is from the work of William Tierney, uh, who called for a more complex understanding uh, to for African-American students who want to maintain their cultural integrity on a historically white campus. And so this chapter really considers, moreover, what might this look like for Chicano Chicano or Latina Latino students, at particularly a public comprehensive urban college um, in California. And so uh, it really draws upon instead of uh, beyond the three stages of the Tinto, uh, model really considers and thinks about three themes. So the first being culture shock, the second being community building, and finally the critical navigation between multiple worlds. And so within that cultural 
uh, culture shock, that first theme, um, the, the Tinto's model assumes and presumes that students are readily welcomed and equitably rewarded for assimilating into mainstream college life. But the reality is that that might not necessarily uh, be the case for students of color. And so the cultural centers uh, really become a home away from home for our students. Um, this is something that really resonated with me. I was, I was thinking about uh, a student, uh, a former student of mine who's now a student affairs educator um, who really thought of us and, and considered us a, um, she called us our parents uh, at college and, and once compared our office to a uh, single mom. Um, and as a um, product of a single mother uh, and a single uh, mother household, I, I took that as a, a really great honor. And, and sort of what she meant by that is um, the, um, the ways in which our office was able to do a whole lot uh, without a very lot of without a lot of institutional support, uh, and that really connects as well to the critical navigation between multiple worlds, uh, where the authors talk about uh, staff and faculty affiliated with culture centers support students of color in their efforts to graduate, often in spite of institutional neglect. And so these cultural centers um, often face uh, a lot of institutional neglect, um, and that uh, individual the programs are sent there and. Um, as we saw in the piece that we read several weeks ago, um, by, by blanking on his name, oh my god, of course I would be blanking on his name, uh, but we'll talk about it in class, um, see if you can remember exactly the piece I'm talking about. Um, and so uh, the second uh, theme would be that community building, that the community of resistance on the margin requires courage, vigilance, and diligence. Uh, students of color seek out these safe campus spaces and community where they can process and respond to the rejection experience while attending a historically white college. And so this is something that I saw a whole lot in my experience of working in our cultural center. And so uh, our students would face uh, the experience of often being the only student of color, um, the only black student, the only Latino student, uh, the only Asian student, um, the only uh, Middle Eastern or uh, students, uh, or only multiracial students um, in a campus class and uh, would face uh, and experience many microaggressions from their faculty uh, or from their peers or from, um, you know, other student affairs offices on campus. And so we uh, were their community. Uh, this is a, might be a space where they might all day only see other individuals that look like them. Um, and that, uh, this uh, work uh, talks about the counter spaces within a cultural center represent the cultural wealth of their home communities. And cultural wealth is, is drawing upon Yasa's work, uh, a very foundational piece uh, about community cultural wealth, which we'll read and talk about in, in several weeks uh, from now. But uh, we're thinking about this uh, piece when we get to that later on. Um, so here's another quote um, uh, from the text. Um, and this is from page 96, it says, when I first arrived, I thought the cultural centers were a form of separation. I thought that they separated the campus by ethnicities. Now I see cultural centers as a celebration of different cultures and as a way of slowing assimilation, which takes our identity away from us. For me, they helped me bring back the culture I had completely lost in the K-12 system. It's also a place that welcomes those who do not have a culture shock. 
I see it as a place that creates opportunities for other students to learn about what they may be defensive against, afraid of, or just curious about. The cultural centers have turned my little ignorant world upside down. I would not be who I am today without the cultural centers. And so these cultural centers allow individuals uh, to have the value of a counter space to survive a system uh, that um, is uh, epistemologically violent uh, against individuals. Um, and so, um, you know, this piece really speaks to the various ways that uh, we can understand and consider and think about um, cultural centers through a critical race lens um, as more than just a place that offers pizza and programs, uh, but a place that is uh, develops uh, culturally uh, um, uh, resistant places. Um, to really help provide that physical, epistemological, social, and academic counter space to build that sense of community, to nurture the critical resistant navigational skills that individuals, uh, students of color, need often to navigate these historically white institutions. Um, so uh, we're gonna close out this week by talking about uh, the piece uh, by Daniel Solorzano, Octavio Villapando, and Leticia Asaguera. Uh, sorry about that. Um, and so opens by and, uh, talking about uh, that in 2000, about 13% or 35.3 million uh, Americans uh, identify as Latino or Latinos. Um, that 8% of Chicanas of Chicanos versus 26% of white individuals have obtained a bachelor's degree. Um, and then this piece uh, really opens with a citation of the Supreme Court case of Grutter versus Bollinger from 2003, um, which uh, Sandra Day O'Connor in the um, majority opinion stated that 25 years from now, race would be an irrelevant measure of educational achievement or academic potential for students of color. Uh, this reinscribes a myth of race neutrality within higher education. Um, I would also argue that 25 years from 2003 um, to make uh, me feel old uh, would be uh, uh, 2027. Um, and so, um, a, uh, you know, we're not quite there. We're about seven years off from there, but, you know, seven years from now, I, I can't imagine with uh, everything that's going on uh, that we would be able to make a claim that race would no longer uh, be a, uh, quote, irrelevant measure of educational achievement or academic potential. Um, and so uh, as I've talked about in these pieces, I've really talked about that race is uh, not a irrelevant um, category from which to consider uh, the lived realities of individuals. I would also say that uh, this piece really uh, set the stage um, for Fisher versus Texas, uh, which is a Supreme Court case that was uh, argued and decided uh, several years ago in relation to affirmative action and consideration of race uh, in university admissions. Um, so um, the authors uh, say that 
They contend that educational researchers and policymakers need to theoretically understand the cumulative effects of inadequate educational preparation and schooling conditions of Latinas and Latinos at the elementary and secondary levels and how this affects their educational attainment in college and beyond. And that's from page 480. Um, and so that this, this article examines the educational pipeline uh, of Latino, Latina undergrads through a critical race theory framework uh, from the elementary school level uh, on through the doctorate for Latina, Latino subgroups in the US, as well as an aggregate. And so you can kind of see on page 481, um, sort of if it, it takes sort of for Latina, Latinos, Native Americans, African Americans, whites, and Asian Americans out of 100 people, how many people will graduate high school, will gain um, their bachelor's degree, will graduate from graduate school, or how many of those individuals uh, will gain a doctorate, and that's in figure one. In figure two, this breaks it down as it talks about into the various different subgroups. And this is not, of course, um, all of uh, the subgroups within Latina, Latino um, uh, community, uh, but it does talk about the Chicano, Chicanos, uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, Cubans, the Dominicans, and Salvadorians. And so it kind of breaks down in the same categories, uh, um, how out of 100 students, um, how many of those are going to graduate high school, how many will graduate college, how many will go to graduate school, how many uh, will earn their doctorates. Um, and so you can kind of see um, there is even within, um, as we talked about this past week, within the Latina Latino uh, community, there is uh, diversity in terms of uh, their experiences, both within the educational systems, um, but the, uh, the subgroups uh, themselves have their own sort of uh, differential uh, educational achievements. Um, based upon sort of the structures and systems of uh, society and culture. Um, and so uh, on page 480, and, and part of uh, the sort of intentionality behind this article, and they argue that it's critical that we, quote, begin to understand why these groups historically, as well as presently, do not attain more equal outcomes as their counterparts in the United States. Um, and so uh, they argue uh, that we need to uh, attend to three particular outcomes. Uh, we need to understand the disparity between two and four year enrollments uh, amongst Latina Latino students. Um, we must attend to and understand the low transfer rates uh, to four year institutions. Uh, and we must contend and understand the graduation rates at the two and four year level. Um, interestingly, um, and I think this is a, a really great uh, way to consider um, the, the notion of using a critical race framework uh, really calls into the question um, um, sort of what happens on campuses. And I think this relates as well to the previous piece and I'll, I'll explain what I mean here. And so the article talks about, you know, the student develop retention efforts. So instead of, they see that there is a retention uh, issue uh, for their community. And so the students themselves develop something to help maintain and work towards retention for their own communities. Um, and so, as I mentioned earlier um, that often within marginalized student communities and, and staff and faculty communities, uh, they carve out their own space um, and um, often do the labor that the institution should be doing, right? Um, and so uh, the institution uh, might be like, great, right? The students are taking ownership over their learning and retention. 
Well, the messages uh, that are transmitted through this is that this work isn't important enough uh, for the institution to take it and therefore the students are not a priority. Um, and therefore, why should a student stay or even come to that institution? Uh, that's not to say that um, student-led initiatives are less valued. That's not the, the argument that I'm making here. But what happens when those students graduate? How is that going to be maintained? Moreover, the argument from a critical race perspective is that um, if the students are doing it um, and the students do not have the institutional backing, the message that is being transmitted is that this initiative is not important enough for the institution to value it and they've just left it to this the free labor um, of the students, right? And so there are many um, uh, ways in which this might occur um, uh, for various communities in, in various times. And we'll talk more about what that looks like in class. Um, and so I think this is also indicative of uh, the previous piece about cultural centers, where it was talking about the institutional neglect for these spaces. Um, these spaces serve as a counter space uh, for these communities, but often are uh, undervalued, uh, underfunded, uh, and underappreciated. Um, and are really kept afloat by the uh, effective labor um, of faculty and staff and students uh, of color and uh, allies and uh, queer and trans uh, communities, individuals who feel an affinity uh, for these cultural centers uh, rather than the institutional support. And so, you know, I always, you know, I always advocate and teach uh, that a budget is a moral document. And so why is it uh, that certain areas are given so much funding, uh, whereas cultural centers, historically, in my experiences, uh, are not funded in equitable ways? Um, and so the question is, uh, why do these conditions uh, for Latino Latino students continue to exist? And why um, is there issues with uh, having these students uh, get access to higher education, uh, to be retained within higher education? Um, so this piece uh, talks about um, the continuing manipulation of self-serving notions of racial neutrality and meritocracy and so that anyone can achieve right and so this idea that anyone can achieve anyone can go to college neglects the real lived experiences of systems and how these systems really perpetuate inequities and maintain the status quo um and so you know thinking about what it means to be someone who knows how to navigate institutions right and so uh, I think uh, for me something that is uh, very present is that um, I have the fortunate experience of having my father who did go to college and so he was able to help me navigate and understand what it meant to sort of transition right and so he had the cultural capital um, and the capital knowledge of uh, university life insofar as much separated by 30 years or more uh, of what it was like to go to college. Um, and so, uh, for instance, even for those of us uh, who don't have family who have gone to college, have you ever tried to explain what you're going to college for to someone who's never gone to college? Uh, I think that's a really great uh, way to conceptualize what it means to sort of have an understanding 
of going to college, right? And so that is a very small snippet of understanding how having a cultural capital uh, related to college uh, enables you to be more successful. My senior year, my father was able to take me to the college I wanted to go to. We met with a financial aid um, professional. He knew the questions to ask. I didn't know what a FAFSA was. Um, and, and, and he was able to ask the questions in a way that was in a, helped me to be enabled to be able to go to college. Um, the authors also talk about um, standardized admissions exams like the SAT or the GRE for graduate school. Uh, these, these exams have a very racist history. SATs were initially uh, created in order to keep institutions white. Uh, do a little bit of research into the history of the SAT and you'll kind of begin to understand uh, why these exams were created and how they continue to perpetuate inequities. SATs are, uh, there's a, a wealth of research illustrating the ways that SATs do not indicate um, success in college uh, as much as they more accurately um, uh, are predictors of financial um, wealth uh, for those who are taking them. Um, and so critical race, uh, a critical perspective uh, would question, well, uh, why are we as institutions still using them if there is a knowledge that these really help us to understand cultural, uh, to understand the financial wealth uh, rather than the ability to achieve in college? I would say that a critical perspective would say, well, you know, those who are coming from wealth are more likely uh, or more able to give back financially to the institution. Um, and so these are sort of the questions uh, that a critical framework allows us to answer, ask rather. Um, and so these are some of the issues. Um, and so unfortunately, higher education has embraced this meritocratic Ill illusion that it is, has been, and will remain objective and colorblind but the authors believe that it is the assertions of neutrality that serve to maintain existing racial, class, sexual, and gender privileges while clearly devaluing uh, and marginalizing Latina and Latino students. Critical race theory proposes a contextual analysis of educational policies and practices. This contextual analysis of the educational inequalities faced by Latina and Latino students uh, point to a continuing lack of attention to how race and racism uh, perpetuates and continues to influence the educational success um, of students. Um, and so I think this is a really great way to understand how this, this illusion of meritocracy uh, that anyone can achieve is not necessarily true. Um, and so, yes, this, is, this article, and I am not saying that students of color cannot achieve. Uh, what I'm saying and what this article is saying, what these articles are saying is that by ignoring the real lived experiences that students of color face uh, in their life embraces this uh, colorblind notion that individuals just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, whether, and so we need to no longer be uh, race neutral. Uh, we no longer need to be racially blind, but really understand the way that we live in a society that is structured in such a way that benefits and, uh, individuals in particular way. Um, so I want to close out a little bit. Um, I, I referenced the work of Mary Matsuda uh, a little bit, uh, who uh, challenges us to ask the other question. That's uh, something that um, she's very famous for sort of 
challenging us to do, uh, to consider where interlocking oppressions might be a prey at play. When we see racism, how other how might other formations of oppression be present? When we see sexism, what other forms of oppression might be present? Where we see uh, homophobia, what other uh, oppressions might be present? When we see genderism, what other oppressions might be present? When we see X, what Y might be present? We need to continually ask how these systems of oppression are, uh, are interlocking uh, that they work together, they are in collusion with one another, um, that uh, continue to oppress uh, multiple different groups in multiple different ways. Uh, and this, uh, yeah. And so I think uh, for me, uh, one of uh, the most important uh, things to consider um, as a student affairs educator uh, and those uh, for individuals who are engaged in social justice education in particular is to engage in the ongoing lifelong personal exploration of how our attitudes and beliefs about ourselves and others are shaped uh, to really engage in a reflective nature notion of how uh, we can continue to make ourselves better uh, we can continue to make the world a more equitable just space to consider the ways that, that systems are set up to disadvantage <laughs> some communities while they privilege other communities. Um, and so um, I encourage you to continue to do that work. Um, and um, I look forward to seeing you in class uh, this coming week. Have a really wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on Monday.